2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I trust are well known in your consciences. I want to uh, try to explain today why we persuade men. You may be seated. You may wonder why a church and many people make a big deal out of being involved in some type of ministry. Why do, why do people commit their time, their talent, and give their treasure, their money, into a local church to make a difference? Well, maybe, you know, it's just the idea that you're needed to serve. Someone does have to be welcoming people at the door and seating guests and receiving the offering and running sound and media, and we thank God that people sing and worship and lead us into the presence of the Lord. And then there's a motivation that God has given you gifts, and our gifts should be used for God's glory, that we should take our lives, put them in the hands of God, and we should be used to glorify Him as a gift back to Him. There's also a great personal satisfaction in serving, knowing that you made a difference in the lives of other people, that you've been blessed or been a blessing to others by your kindness. The Bible also says in this passage that our service in the kingdom of God will be rewarded, that God makes note of what we do with our lives and that there is an eternal reward. There was a poem that became a song back in the day, Only One Life, So Soon It Shall Pass, Only What's Done for Christ Will Last. Your lifetime is bracketed. And your life is all you have to determine what your eternity looks like. So life is now, eternity is forever. And whatever difference you make in the world now and in the way eternity looks for you, you have to do in this season we call time. That's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10 for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now when Paul says, we all must appear, if you just read that one text and out of the context of the entire Bible, you may think that this judgment is for every person in the history of the world. But actually this is directed to people like you and me who have been born again of water and spirit are in the church. All of us who are saved people. All of us born again people must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. In the Greek the word was bima. It was the place where rewards were handed out in Olympian games before there was an Olympics. It would have been the Isthmian games or similar sporting events where the athletes would come and where prizes would be given out. Some wreath that would say that you have won. The judgment seat of Christ is a place where rewards to God's people are issued. Paul 
spoke about this earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I want you to see this today because I want you to understand why we persuade men. 1 Corinthians 3.11 For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. We build our lives on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And if you don't build on that foundation, then you are not saved. You're not in a right relationship with God. And your eternal destiny is what we would call hell or the lake of fire. Paul goes on to say, Now if anyone builds on this foundation, this good foundation of Jesus Christ, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, or the King James says stubble, each one's work will become clear for the day. This day of the judgment seat of Christ will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test everyone's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned... He will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. This is a picture of what will happen. As we come to the judgment seat of Christ, there will be a fire of sorts of judgment that will burn up anything in our life that has no eternal value. Paul calls it wood, hay, stubble, or straw, and the fire will consume everything out of our life that has no eternal value. Gold, silver, precious stones will endure through that fire. Instead of being destroyed, they will be purified or made better. That's why I said only what is done for Christ will last. Only what survives this fire of judgment will accrue toward your eternal reward. Now, wood, hay, and stubble doesn't refer to sinful acts, deeds, or attitudes, but refers to the stuff in our life that really doesn't matter for eternity. In first in Romans chapter 14, Paul spoke of this same judgment. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And he says in preceding words that we shouldn't judge other people's life and work and ministry. For as we live, every knee shall bow... And every tongue will confess and all of us will give an account of himself to God. In other words, we will not stand there in groups. It won't be the baptismal team or the media team or the ushering team or the choir in mass. But every one of us individually will stand before God and all of the works of our lives that have no eternal value will have been burned up and what we present to God will be what is left of that fire that burns away stuff that doesn't matter. It will test our works what sort it is. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul uses the words good or bad, but worthy or worthless. What matters compared to what does not matter for eternity. All the stuff of our lives that is fluff and flammable will be burned. The wood, the hay, the stubble is the stuff in our lives 
like our hobbies, our preoccupations, the activities of our lives that have no eternal value, that will not accrue toward any eternal reward. It will be burned up. Not that they are evil. Paul said that every one of us will suffer loss. There will be stuff in our life that doesn't matter for eternity. But there has to be something left that matters to God and matters for eternity. So I've learned that you can put purpose into your pleasure and you can let your life have gold, silver, and precious stone that accounts or counts for an eternal investment in the kingdom of God. So prayer, ministry, giving, going to take the gospel, doing practical things on behalf of the church and the kingdom of God make an eternal difference. And I have observed in in my life and ministry that there are heroes of the kingdom of God all around the world. There are godly people who serve faithfully in local churches that might surprise someone that day. You may think it will just be the missionaries that have heaps of gold, silver, and precious stone. But Jesus spoke of a five-talent man, a two-talent man, and a one-talent man. And those who were productive, the five-talent man and the two-talent man, hear the same words. Amen? They hear uh, that you are a good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. They both hear, well done. Whether they're a missionary on the field or a saint serving in an obscure role in a local church somewhere, they have found a place to make a difference for the kingdom of God. Gold, silver, precious stone. They're not serving for accolades or trophies. They're not serving to be rewarded. They may never get an attaboy or a pat on the back or a thank you here. But they are every day investing gold, silver, precious stone. They're the prayer warriors that in a secret, private place are interceding for the lost. And they make a difference in a church. They're people that care about lost people. And they call them and check on them and connect them to the church. They are living and longing to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. You will be made ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Most of these people are not flashy or fancy, but they are certainly faithful. And they are living in the light of eternity. They serve in their lifetime knowing that they have been summoned to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And Paul said, all of us, everyone in the kingdom of God, every born-again believer must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And these unsung heroes invest their lives by producing works that will not be lost in the judgment of that fire. They're investing in the lives of others, gathering gold and silver and precious stones. They understand the compounding effect of years of ministry that are accruing toward their eternal reward. And they will be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. No matter who goes to heaven, heaven is going to be awesome. But Paul said that if your works are burned up, you will suffer loss, yet you will still be saved. Now heaven is going to be great for everyone... But according to this passage and others in the Bible, heaven will not be the same. 
There will some who will have great reward because of the way they spent their lives. There will be others who maybe barely made it there. You are summoned to the judgment seat of Christ. If you've obeyed Acts 2.38 by repenting of your sins, being baptized in Jesus' name, being filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost, you're in the body of Christ. You have a summons to the judgment seat of Christ. We've been all called to save ourselves from an untoward or perverse generation, to build our lives on the foundation of Jesus Christ. But our next stop as the people of God, as saved people, is the judgment seat of Christ. But there are others who will not go to the judgment seat of Christ. They are unsaved people. Their next stop after the termination of life is a different judgment. Perhaps that great white throne judgment. As the writer of Hebrews said, it is appointed unto men once to die. And after this, the judgment. The vast majority of the people in this sanctuary today would consider yourself saved. That means that you have been summoned to the judgment seat of Christ. And I can tell you today that you should be concerned about that appointment that you have. The productivity of your life may not be 100% or as Jesus said of the seed that fell on good ground some produced a hundredfold, a hundred times beyond what was invested. Then he said some others who were productive in their lives produced sixtyfold, and still others only thirtyfold. But whether you are a thirtyfold Christian, or a sixtyfold Christian, or a hundredfold Christian, if you are saved, you may suffer loss. For the way you spent your life, that doesn't matter. But if you've lived for God and stayed in the church, there will be something for you there. But according to the writings of Paul, if the sum total of what you have done for Christ after you were saved by Him, if it sums up to zero, then there is another judgment to face. The unprofitable servant, according to Jesus Christ, goes somewhere else. He is cast into outer darkness. So I'm saying to you today that we persuade men, first of all, because we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. I do not want to stand there that day empty-handed with no gold or silver or precious stones. I do not want my life to be summed up with wood, hay, and stubble that will be burned up in a fire of judgment against the works that do not matter. For eternity, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things that are done in our body, whether they are good or bad. This summons should mean something about the way I am spending my life. I believe that on that day I will need to show something of substance to Jesus Christ that shows evidence of profitability in my life. You may not have thought about this summons very often, 
But when you signed on to serve in ministry, you begin to invest gold, silver, and precious stones. When you started a Bible study at your office, or when you began to minister to your neighbors, you begin to invest gold and silver and precious stone into the kingdom of God. For all the reasons that people are involved in giving themselves to other people, I want you to understand that there is a judgment seat of Christ. And maybe you don't enjoy serving. Maybe you're not thinking about how it blesses other people. Maybe you're not just activating your gift. Maybe rewards do not motivate you. But there is a judgment seat of Christ. And it is important that you are ready for that appointment to stand before Jesus Christ. And say, here is what I bring to this place to say, my life has made a difference for eternity. Only one life. So soon it shall pass. Only what is done for Christ will pass. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for the deeds that are done in our body, whether good or bad. And so far, that's what Paul has said. But then he connects this in the next verse, verse 11 to something that is somewhat ominous to me. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. If you find no joy in serving, if you don't care about utilizing your gifts, if you're not motivated by eternal rewards, Paul said, there is another reason, a more compelling reason that we Persuade men. It is because of the terror of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Now I hope that if you're a Christian today, that you are not kind of jarred by those words, the terror of the Lord. Paul said, it was this reason, it was for this reason that I spent my life persuading others to be, to be saved. For Paul said, I am aware that although God is good and gracious, that there is an aspect of His nature that is just. And as a judge of the earth, He will one day come to men and women who are not saved, who do not know the Lord, and they will not experience the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, but they will experience the terror of the Lord. Paul said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, knowing that after death there is a judgment. I spend my life in a way that somehow affects men that will spend eternity somewhere. Let me try to explain the terror of the Lord. Every time I've tried to describe heaven... And every time I've tried to describe hell, I feel like words fail me because there are no words that can really adequately describe the splendor of heaven. And there are no words in any language that it can adequately show to people the horrors of the place called hell. In John chapter 5, Jesus spoke about a resurrection of the just and the unjust. Not just saved people, but saved and lost people they're going to hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear will live. And Jesus has been given authority to execute judgment. John 5, 28, marvel not at this. 
For the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and they shall come forth. They that have done good under the resurrection of life. And they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation. This is not the judgment seat of Christ for Christians. But this is the judgment bar. Where sentencing for eternity will take place. And there is a dividing left, right, sheep from goats, wheat from tares, saved to lost. That is what John is describing in John 5.29. And those are the words of Jesus Christ. John also write about this final disposition. Wrote about this final disposition of the saved and the lost in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. John writes, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat upon it, from whose face the whole earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for him. And I, John said, saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. It is because of this passage and others like it that Paul would say, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. When I understand that every person I pass every day has these judgments in their future, it makes me understand that I must persuade men. Maybe I don't say it because of reward at the judgment seat of Christ, but I make a difference because that person will stand before God and if their name is not found written in the book of life, they will be cast into the lake of fire. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord... We persuade men. As a church to our society, we appear dogmatic to them because we know the terror of the Lord. We preach messages like this and pull some out of the fire. Some saved by fear, the Bible said, because of the terror of the Lord. We teach and preach the Bible here. And we do not compromise for whatever may be happening in contemporary culture because of the terror of the Lord. We give to missions to reach people all around the world because we believe that every man must appear before God after death, the judgment. You see, the Bible said in Isaiah that hell has enlarged itself. Hell has increased its appetite For human beings that will come there. And because hell has increased itself, 
I believe that the church should be progressing and advancing and growing and adding a service and pressing people to take two and invite somebody to an Easter service because if hell sees the need to enlarge itself, surely the church must say, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We preach the essentiality of repentance Baptism in water in the name of Jesus Christ. And the filling of the gift of the Holy Ghost. Not because everybody says that, but because the Bible says that. Because I am convinced in my own mind and by the word of God that if man is not born of water and of spirit, he cannot see, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And anything less than that message is religion, but it is not salvation. And knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And if you believe that, would you applaud the Lord? Would you respond with an amen? Would you preach with me a little bit? On this Sunday morning. Yeah, we got here this morning a little earlier than some churches. And we started at 8.58 actually. Because knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. I will preach this message twice today. Hoping that somebody will hear it now and later. For the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Those of us who are saved... Work to cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of the flesh and spirit because we know that without holiness no man shall see the Lord. We work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We understand that we must walk with God. It is knowing the terror of the Lord. I've said it over and again, but you should forgive those who have offended you. And you should ask those you have offended to forgive you because of the terror of the Lord. I want to be right with God. Amen. I want to be in a relationship that I make sure I stand before the judgment seat of Christ and not before the white throne judgment in a place of condemnation. A few minutes ago, Brother Brad led us in the celebration of what's with the party and we celebrated too New people in the past week born into the kingdom of God. But it should have been 20 or 200 or 2,000 or 2 million or 20 million or 200 million. Because if I understand our culture, it's not a need for two. It's not a need to fill a building. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. I understand that there's not a lot of sermons like this being preached today. And some people would say, well, when you preach on hell, it's manipulative. It's a fear tactic. Well, I just want you to know today that I'm preaching the message that Jesus preached. For Jesus mentioned hell in 46 verses in your Bible. He compared it to the valley of Hinnom, this this really a dump where people's dead bodies and trash burn continually. The valley of Hinnom or Gehenna, which is similar, similar to or compared to a place called hell. Jesus compared hell to a prison and to outer darkness. Jesus likened hell to a fire in at least 20 verses of the Bible. 
in Matthew 5, he said that you could be in danger of hell fire. In Matthew 18, he spoke about doing whatever it took to be saved because it's better to go to heaven with one hand and one eye than it is to be cast into everlasting fire. Jesus preached on hell and he called it outer darkness where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Gnashing is the grinding of teeth either in anger or in pain. In Matthew 13, Jesus said it again, that everything that is not in the kingdom of God will be gathered out, everything that offends, and all that do iniquity, and they will be cast into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 13, verse 50, Jesus said again, that he will sever the wicked from among the just, and he will cast them in a furnace of fire. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 22, Jesus spoke about a man who would be invited to a wedding feast, but he would not take the time to adorn a required wedding garment. He just showed up just as he was, but he did not really get changed into an adequate garment. And the Bible said that he would be asked, why are you here without a wedding garment? Are you standing here expecting to be saved, but you're clothed with the clothing of the lost? And the Bible said that he will be bound hand and foot and cast into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus spoke about those who would be on his left hand. Depart from me, you cursed, enter into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, 46, these will go into everlasting punishment. And Jesus said, do not be afraid of the person who can only destroy your body. But he said, you need to fear him, which is able to destroy both your body and your soul in hell. The Bible is very clear that each of us have only one of two eternal destinations. And Paul would say, knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Paul wrote that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. He would say in Thessalonians that there is a flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God. And they will be punished with everlasting destruction. In 2 Peter, he spoke about chains of darkness. Jude wrote about suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Those that have given themselves over to sexual immorality and go after strange or perverted flesh. He said they will suffer the vengeance of eternal fire. It doesn't matter what our culture say or what churches vote to do. What the Bible says is true and knowing. Therefore, the terror of the Lord we persuade men. And Jude wrote again in the 13th verse that there are those who are like wandering stars. They foam out their own shame. They're like raging waves of the sea to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Some people teach the false doctrine of annihilation that when people die... They will just immediately be destroyed and cease to exist. 
But the Bible teaches otherwise that eternity is forever and that people will suffer the judgments of God forever and ever and ever. Revelation 21 and 8, the words of Jesus in Revelation, but the fearful, or John rather quoting the Lord, but the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And my precious people today, knowing, therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. To warn a person of impending danger is not a message of fear. It is a message of hope. If I called you on the phone and I told you that there is a tornado bearing down on your neighborhood, would that be a message of fear or would that be a message of hope? If I was a neighbor of yours and I saw an intruder trying to break into your home, would that be a message of fear or hope if I called you or ran to your house and said, save yourself, there is impending danger. Not only did Jesus... Preach, though, on the horrors of hell. But he died to keep you from going there. He died to save you from your sins. The preaching of hell is an ethical way to persuade men, as Jude said, and I quoted it early. Others, he said, saved by fear. Some you have compassion on them, but he said others, you've got to save them by fear. Pulling them out of the fire because there is a fire and it is real. And knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Knowing that eternity will be one ending torment, we persuade men. Knowing that the lake of fire is an eternal destination for lost souls, we persuade men. Knowing that there is no second chances after death, we persuade men. Knowing that Jesus died for the sins of the world, we persuade men. Knowing there is no other gospel that will save people from an eternal lake of fire, we persuade men. We persuade men because men and women must be persuaded. They don't know it on their own. We persuade men because Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers. We persuade men by interceding in prayer for them. We persuade men by building relationships on common ground. We persuade men by teaching them the Bible. We persuade men because the Satan and this world system is busy doing the same thing to persuade people that God doesn't matter, that there is no God, that religion is a bunch of false stuff. That's what the devil does every day. And while Satan and media and contemporary society is saying... It doesn't matter. Somebody has to stand in the road and say, the bridge is out. You're going the wrong way. There is an eternity. There is a lake of fire. And knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. It is the mission of the church to, pers to persuade men. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. But if they are not saved, they will never go there. They will go to that judgment that is a sentencing of an eternity separated from God. We persuade men because someone else is saying that religion is the fabrication of weak-minded people. 
But we understand that the Bible is true. We persuade men because too many people believe the first part of what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 11.9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. In other words, just live any way you want, Solomon said. But know that for all these, God will bring you into judgment. Jesus told a compelling story about the rich man and Lazarus. He said there was a rich man and he, he just lived like a king every day. He fared sumptuously. He was clothed in purple and fine linen. There was a beggar named Lazarus who was full of sores and he laid at the entrance to that man's house. He laid at the rich man's gate. And he wanted the crumbs that fell from that rich man's table. But evidently he never got any of them. And the dogs would come by and they would lick Lazarus' sores. He laid there and suffered for many years or days or months, however long. The Bible said that eventually the beggar died. And you would think that the beggar would die. He was full of sores. He was malnourished, I'm sure. But he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. But the Bible says that the rich man also died and was buried. It doesn't say that Lazarus was even buried. But this rich man also died because death is the great equalizer. Poor man Lazarus, rich man unnamed. And the Bible said that in, in hell, this rich man lifted up his eyes. And he saw Abraham afar off and he saw Lazarus in his bosom, in his arms. So it tells me that in hell, in the afterlife, there must be some consciousness of the other good world. The rich man can see from hell to a place of comfort. And he prays. In hell, he cries and says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus. And he would dip his finger in water that he would come and cool my tongue. A poor man that laid at your gate that you would never even give leftovers to. Now you're asking that dirty, filthy beggar to come put his finger in your mouth and cool your tongue. He prays for mercy. Something he evidently never did on earth. He requests these droplets of water. The flames are real flames. He said, I am tormented in these flames. He is not annihilated and ceasing to exist. His torment continues forever. Abraham says, son, remember that in your lifetime you receive good things. And likewise Lazarus evil. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. You live for time. Lazarus, he lived for eternity. And now in eternity, the roles are reversed. The economy is different in eternity. Money cannot buy you a drop of water. In hell, your money, your talent, the accumulations of this life, all the wood and hay and stubble, and all the sinful deeds of your life cannot buy you one thing. But then, the words come back to the rich man, and besides all this, there's a great gulf fixed 
So that those who would pass from here to there cannot. And you cannot come to us. In other words, these eternal destinations are mutually exclusive. And you cannot get from one to the other. And wherever you are when you die, you are there forever and ever and ever. He prays the second prayer from hell. He said, I beg you, would you send Lazarus to my father's house? For I have five brothers. He kind of says, would you tell Lazarus to take five? Would you have Lazarus take five sermons and go back to my brother's house, my father's house, and tell my brothers, let him testify them to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. The second prayer request is not for himself, it's for his lost family that he left behind. Laying at his gate was the answer to his soul. He never gave Lazarus a chance to testify while he was alive. In hell, this rich man is aware of relationships. He is aware of the people he left behind that he could have influenced to be saved. But perhaps he only influenced them to be rich or to admire his great wealth. He never showed mercy to the poor man Lazarus. Now he's begged for mercy. And now he's begged for a preacher from hell, from heaven rather, to go back to his father's house. And Father Abraham says, they have the Bible, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear the Bible. And the rich man says, oh, oh no. I know they've never listened to preaching. They've never listened to what was right in front of them in the Bible. But if, but if somebody would rise from the dead and go back to them, if they would see that old beggar walking in the door, I know they would listen to him. Abraham said no. If they will not hear the Bible, they would not be persuaded no one rise from the dead. I wonder about the prayer requests in hell. And my brothers and my sisters of this church, I'm preaching only what the Lord spoke into my spirit. There's a lot of reasons to be involved in ministry but there is no greater motivator than knowing the terror of the Lord we persuade our family and our co-workers and our neighbors people we meet in chance passing would you stand and whether you consider yourself saved or lost whether you consider yourself a gift or a charter member, would you move from your place where you're standing and would you find a place to pray at this altar?
Would you find a place to move to? Would you please come quickly now? Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, it's time to just be a church goer. It's time to quit being a church goer. Time to quit being just a church member. It's time to quit being a person who is on the fringe. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Would you come gather close? There's an altar area for kneeling. You can stand. You can find a seat at the front if you need to be seated. But I'm inviting you to come right now.